Welcome to the 31st episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a recap of Patrick's weekend predictions, the NBA Week in Review, and a look back in the national semifinals and national championship game of the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com, and we'll start in the NBA, where the Mavericks beat the Knicks 99-86, to with Patrick correctly picking the Mavericks. The Bucks beat the Trailblazers 127-109, to with Patrick incorrectly picking the Blazers to win that contest. The Clippers beat the Lakers 104-86, Patrick correctly picked the Clippers. And the Grizzlies beat the 76ers 116-110, Patrick incorrectly picked the 76ers, but because what's been happening recently where Patrick picks a game a few days in advance and some key players not unavailable, Patrick did state in his weekend predictions article that if the 70 the 76ers would win if Joel Embiid played, and he did not play against the Grizzlies, so that's not going to count against Patrick's record. He was 2-2 two two in his NBA hoops predictions. In college basketball, we're not going to go every, every, over every game because they occurred uh, later earlier in the week, and everybody knows basically what happened to, uh, to this point. But Patrick went 5-1 and one in his college basketball predictions for NCAA tournament action. So Patrick was 7-3 and three overall in the weekend predictions that count, bringing him to 101-60 and 60 overall, a 627 winning percentage this season. Patrick, your thoughts on your predictions? Uh, yeah, those records are going to be counted, but I am just saying outright that I will be, from now on, stating in those games, just to have a little bit of an asterisk on it, which is what I have here, uh, I, I will state it if I think that something is based on a condition of a player playing or not. Although in some of the other ones, it was not something that I knew beforehand. LeBron's injury happened day after I wrote it, so that's that's different. But Embiid, I saw, it's a back-to-back, and most players don't play both ends of a back-to-back regardless of if they're injured or not, and definitely not if they just came back from an injury. So I wasn't very surprised, but that's why I wrote that, because I knew it was a very, 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 very likely possibility. Uh, and then college basketball, obviously... The Elite Eight predictions weren't very hard. Every single higher-seeded team won except for Michigan. And then the predictions from then on were, I would say, not very difficult either. Uh, Baylor just came out and destroyed Houston, and Gonzaga came out and, well, they almost they almost destroyed UCLA, but then they after a few minutes, UCLA was like, oh, we can hang with these guys, and then ended up being probably one of the best games of all time. Uh, so... When we all know how that ended with Suggs uh, banking in the half-court shot to end the game. So, look, a win's a win. Gonzaga's happy to be in the championship game. And, yeah, so pretty happy with those results. So my apologies. You're being very magnanimous by by taking the L on a game that you specifically disclaimed. Um, It would only be if the 76ers win. So very, very magnanimous of you to to keep track of that and your record as a loss. Um, All right, well, Patrick's predictions for next weekend, again, will be posted on our website on Thursday, and let's stick with the NBA uh, in depth in terms of our weekly recap. Uh, as always, we do the most impressive teams of the week, so let's start with that topic. Patrick, who's your most impressive team of the week in the NBA? I gave it to the Miami Heat, and the reason why is there were actually, I think there were, I think there are over, I want to say six or seven win streaks right now that, that happened of every single team winning every game this week, uh, so it was actually tough to pick these teams. But I gave it to the Heat because they had a four-game win streak after a six-game losing streak, and everybody was talking about, can they get it back together? Where do they go in the playoff picture? What's going to go on with them? 
I just think this was impressive because I did not expect them to be able to stabilize like this after a, lo a really long losing streak. Uh, they beat the Knicks, the Pacers, the Warriors, and the Cavs. Uh, every team there except for the Cavs kind of floating in playoff range. The Knicks are definitely probably the easiest one to make the playoffs out of that group. But the Pacers are still kind of figuring things out, getting Levert integrated in the team. Uh, the Warriors are on a really, really rough patch, but we're going to get to that later. Uh, and yes, that's why I had the Heat at, at number one. All right, who do you have as your second most impressive team of the week? I gave it to the Jazz, and the reason why is because they had a tough situation early in the week where they actually had their plane uh, make an emergency landing. And I just think it's crazy that a team that ha that has this kind of rhythm throughout the regular season, something like that happening where then you have Donovan Mitchell who has, a, 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 I don't know the technical term for it, but a fear of flying, when you have him re not being able to travel against uh, for a game against the Grizzlies and you also play the Grizzlies for the third time in a week, you beat the same team three times in a week. It's it, That is really, really hard to do. Um, and they also beat the Cavaliers, the Bulls, and the Magic, and they're on a nine-game win streak. They went 4-0 this week. The Jazz just continue to be impressive because no matter what's going on, I mean, they probably had the worst outward situation other than maybe the Heat's beginning of the season COVID issues and then not having Jimmy Butler. This was probably the, the worst external situation factor that any team has had to deal with. So for the Jazz to be 4-0 through that, I'd say it's very, very impressive. All right, and your third most impressive team of the week. I gave it to the Denver Nuggets because I am liking how, uh, in contrast to a team maybe like the Bulls, who are on a six-game losing streak and three since the trade deadline at, at one point, they took their new addition and they have been flourishing with Aaron Gordon. Five-game winning streak for them. They beat the Sixers, the Clippers, uh, and the Magic. Uh, they had a 19-point comeback against the Magic. So a very great week overall for Denver, and that's why I gave it to them. Okay, well, let's move to your most disappointing teams of the week. My most disappointing team of the week was the Houston Rockets. I think they were the only team actually that went winless in this entire week. If they were not the only one, it was probably the Cavaliers, but I don't really have much faith in them winning any games. Uh, just as the Rockets had won one game, back to the four-game losing streaks. They're back on their streaks. They lost to the Grizzlies, the Nets, the Celtics, and the Pelicans this week. Uh, I think they could have had a chance to beat the Pelicans, frankly. I don't think the Pelicans are really good enough to just outright beat anybody very easily. So that's definitely a game they could have won. Uh, yeah, so the Rockets there because they had the biggest losing streak of the week. And your second most disappointing team of the week, and sorry about this one. Yeah, this one's got to go to the Lakers. Um, we're getting to the point now where we know who everybody is at this point in the year. There's no more. We're at 50 games. We know who every team is. I mean, yes, the Rockets are kind of the the only ones who we're unsure of because their roster has been continuously shuffled, and they have no clear leader and no clear starting five. They change it every five minutes. So they're the only team that we don't really 100% know everything about. Um, but the Lakers we know a lot about, and look, injuries, whatever, whatever you want to call it. They only beat the Kings this week. They went one and two. They lost to the Bucks and the Clippers. Uh, I don't really care about them losing. I just care that it was not competitive in either of the losses. Uh, and I, I don't expect them to necessarily win these games, but I do expect them to at least stay competitive at like, at the very least. I mean, we've seen... We've seen the Clippers all of last year deal with only having one of Kawhi or Paul George or 
or neither of them and still be at least somewhat decent. Uh, now that they lose Drummond, that's a big issue. And generally, I would say it is disappointing that their roster is falling apart and getting injured. And I don't know how they're going to get chemistry before the playoffs. Oh, well, let's move to your third most disappointing team of the week. It's got to be the Golden State Warriors because the player of the week nominee or runner-up, I would say, Stephen Curry, even playing as well as he was, was extremely upset with how awful his team has been playing recently. Uh, they are three and seven in their last ten games. They're one and three this week. Obviously, this being the Warriors, I know I never said it, but come on, it's Steph Curry. You know what team I'm talking about. Uh, they only beat the Bulls, who were in the middle of a huge losing streak post trade deadline. Just getting their chemistry together with their new roster moves. Uh, they also lost the Heat, the Raptors, and the Hawks. Uh, the, the Heat, look, the Heat were in the six game losing streak just last week, so. Not necessarily the team that's flying high, nor the Raptors at all. The Raptors are nowhere close to playing well. Uh, the Hawks are the only team I actually considered putting them on my most impressive teams, but their wins were not as strong as some of the as the teams that I ended up putting on there. But they had a pretty good week this week too. But the Warriors, they, they got to beat teams like the Hawks if they want to make the playoffs in the West. Uh, and if maybe maybe they are going to win both of those play-in games and somehow find a way, but. I would say Steph, and you know Draymond said it himself too. They're not comfortable just being in the play-in games. He the very uh, blatantly stated that's not where they want to be. That's not where they should be. So they need to pick it up. They know it. We all know it. It is disappointing that they're playing like this. They need to play better. All right, and as always, we end on a positive note. Let's move to your player of the week. I gave it to Luka Doncic on the Dallas Mavericks. He averaged twenty-eight point three points per game. 6.8 rebounds and 6.8 and 6.3 assists. He also did it on 54.4% shooting and 40.5% from the three-point line, which is really, really efficient for Luka, who's known more as kind of a volume scorer. Uh, not going to take 20 shots and get 25. He's going to take 30 shots to get 25. Maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating that a little bit, but that's the general uh, gist of what that means as a volume scorer. And for him to be above 50% and 40 from three, those are really, really good numbers that if he could keep up, uh, that would make the Dallas really, really scary. They are also on a four-game winning streak because of his performances. And by the way, another team on a winning streak that I couldn't put on my uh, most impressive teams of the week because of how many teams are on win streaks right now, getting hot at the right time. All right, well, that wraps up our NBA recap, and we're going to stick with basketball and move over to college basketball and take a look back at the Final Four and the National Championship game. Uh, in the men's side of things. Let's start with Saturday's first national semifinal as Baylor beat Houston 78-59. Patrick, what are your thoughts on this game? I think I said on the podcast before that similar to Baylor against Arkansas, we don't know what margin the win will, the victory, margin of victory it will fall into, but Baylor will win the game. Uh, I was pretty sure of that. And Baylor came out and finally, finally, finally played and shot like the Baylor before their COVID pause, exactly. the one that was 22-0 and and under, or it might not have been 22-0, but at least 20 wins and no losses. Uh, the one that was undefeated, the one that was in the conversation of if they're better uh, than Gonzaga, and the one that actually had Gonzaga as not a unanimous number, AP, AP poll number one. They finally, finally brought it into form, and oh my, was it beautiful. They kind of destroyed Houston in the first half. I think they were up want to say, yeah, 45 to 20 at the half. Game was over uh, at the half. Houston. And this time you believe me. Well, <laughs> this one, I would say, I, I think Kenny Smith said it on the halftime show, Houston's got to cut it to 10. 
and then go from there. And they, I think, had it at 18, 10 minutes in. And uh, yeah, you can't. You got to cut the lead, as he said, that more than in half. Twenty-five point lead. You got to get it down fifteen points to ten. Didn't do it. Only got it down seven. They did play better in the second half. And frankly, if the second half were an entire game, Houston could have won the game. They actually did score more than Baylor in the second half. But I mean, you know, not very reliable because Baylor's obviously just trying to keep a lead. Probably didn't take some shots that they could have. Yeah. But that's why I'm not saying they could have. That's not why I'm saying they definitely would have won if the second half was its own game. But they could have won because they played a lot better, especially on the defensive end. Uh, overall, Houston can't be disappointed with their season. Coming off a few years in a row of heartbreak, last-second losses, then the tournament that got wiped out entirely that they didn't even get to play in because it never happened. To make it finally to the Final Four, back to the promised land for this program, is a great sign for them. I'm sure all their fans are happy with the season, although they're definitely disappointed with the finish. Yeah, well, unlike the first game uh, in the Final Four, the second game in the Final Four was close and a classic uh, Gonzaga beat UCLA 93-90 to in overtime. Patrick, your thoughts on this one? This might have been one of the greatest games of all time. It was at least the greatest one of this season. It definitely won up Michigan-Ohio State in the regular season because sure. way higher stakes, obviously. <laughs> much, much, much higher stakes. Um, Really, I I don't think there was one key to this game. I was surprised. I was general. I was genuinely surprised at how efficient UCLA played against Gonzaga, especially after Gonzaga had been playing so well on the defensive end, and uh, Michigan had just held UCLA to fifty-one points. I thought it looked like a different team. Uh, yeah, we we both we both talked about it. How if Michigan's defense is right, even or maybe just a tiny bit better than Gonzaga then how does UCLA score 50 against Gonzaga? And if they're not scoring 50, they're not beating Gonzaga. And I think the talk of everybody was, if they got to keep this game to 75 or 70 and then somehow score enough to win. And they came out and surprised everybody. And uh, they really just played a lot better than people thought they would. And uh, you can you can share some. Well, of your yeah, thoughts. I think I think, and we'll talk a little. We're gonna maybe it's a foreshadowing the national championship game, but maybe it was a wake up call. The one thing people had question about Gonzaga all year was, was their defense. Was yes, and also the quality of their competition. Um, frankly, you know they hadn't played great quality competition since December, since Christmas, pretty much. Yeah, right. and uh, maybe and not to say they're not talented, but sometimes you're not. You, you can't. You gotta you gotta bring yourself to the level of your opponent. You're not used to playing at that level. And I think UCLA, once UCLA hung in with them in the beginning of the game, I think that uh, that they believed that they could win. And I think that Gonzaga was a little bit shocked. I think that they thought they were gonna come in and cruise, especially because, you know, they're kids. They watched UCLA score fifty one against Michigan, and they were probably like, come on, this team doesn't have any offense. Um, the other thing I would say is that UCLA's key to their success continued in this game. Their free throw defense was once again <laughs> phenomenal. Their defense at, in the lane at the free throw line, whatever juju magic they're using, they held Gonzaga to 60%. You know what? J.R. Smith has once untied people's shoes at the free throw line to bug him. You never know what they might be doing. They might be saying stuff that we're not hearing. You I mean, never when know. I was a kid in grade school, we'd all hum together mm, and made our yep. noise buzzing. You never sound. know. You don't know what never they're know. doing. But it is uncanny. And by the way, <laughs> it, 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 every game. So I won't harp on it, but seriously, 
eight missed free throws for Gonzaga in an, again in an overtime There needs game. to be an advanced stats check on if any team has ever had every single opponent shoot under their free throw percentage well, in the tournament you and I in straight at, through a tournament. You so. and I looked at the luck factor, right? There is the luck factor out there. and we thought They're we, not even that high rated. They're not that high ranked. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop harping on that. It's a joke, but it's serious. But let's get back to that theme of Gonzaga's quality of opponent during the season. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that uh, in the month of December, Gonzaga played... West Virginia, Iowa, and Virginia, uh, playing Virginia on December 26th. Uh, they basically killed all of them, except for they only beat West Virginia by five points. And they actually had 17 days off in between the game uh, against West Virginia and at Iowa, and somehow came back and won. So that was definitely giving people confidence, because even Baylor, after their COVID pause, looked really, really shaky. Um, but if you look at it, that's a three-seed, a two-seed, and a four-seed that they beat in December— and in every month of the rest of the year, they only played one tournament team in every single month before the tournament. They played BYU, BYU. January 7th. They played BYU February 8th. And they played BYU March 9th, which is kind of funny order in that in that <laughs> the cal- the way that works out on the calendar. And we watched them play some bad halves. That opening half against Pepperdine. Uh, yep. know, they, it, they, they played some close games against some really bad teams. And uh, also, BYU, frankly, had them beat uh, in their conference tournament. So... Maybe they shouldn't have been undefeated coming in. Maybe if they played even in a slightly better conference, uh, they would have been. Uh, many people made the point that if they were in the Pac-12, they probably would have two or three losses. They'd still look great, but probably have two or three losses, still end up as a one seed, but a little bit weaker looking. Um, and I think it really caught up to them in this game. And then, you know, we talked about it. I said at the at the very beginning, you, you gave me so many adjectives to describe, to put on different regions, and every single one of them, except for hard, I put on Gonzaga, uh, Gonzaga's region. I gave them the easiest region. I said they they, they were the craziest one, I, I think, is the other one. But look, they ended up playing Oklahoma, Creighton, and USC. I don't think any of those teams could have beaten any of the one seeds Whereas all of the other teams that anybody else played were a lot harder on the way. Uh, Baylor played probably 25 games in a row that were all teams that were better than that. If you look at the seeding that happened with the Big 12, including Oklahoma themselves. Yeah. Baylor played them twice. They played Oklahoma State three times. A two, that's, a, that's a four seed for you. They played West Virginia a bunch of times. It, it just really, Baylor was so battle tested. They were so ready to be successful. They knew how to play when they were down. They knew how to play when one guy's shots aren't falling. And it showed the entire tournament. And I think the biggest thing of having that kind of easy schedule uh, is, look, they play people in the non-conference, but Virginia got Virginia got a lot better since they lost them by 23. Iowa only lost them by 11 and started playing better. West Virginia started playing better after losing them by five. So if we looked at that, we could say those teams are almost as good as them and frankly, the thing is, when you front load your schedule like that, because you can't play anybody in your conference, we really don't know what you are down the stretch. We knew that Michigan has some bad games that they play because of them getting killed by Illinois when Illinois doesn't have Iota Sumu. We knew that Michigan has the potential to just lay goose eggs some games. It, it happens. And we you could see that through all those teams. You could see Baylor, when they come off a pause, can have some problems. Uh, and I think that the one thing that, that was not there with Gonzaga is they were consistent, but they were consistent beating very, very low-quality opponents, which means that you can't glean anything about their team strength from it. Okay, so but let's get back to this game because we were all surprised that, that UCLA hung with Gonzaga, and we talked yep. about some of the reasons why. 
let's talk about the game because we started with this talking about how it was one of the best games ever. And so we talked about maybe why Gonzaga was at UCLA's level and UCLA elevating themselves. Let's talk about the game a little bit. What would just, what, what's going to, everybody's going to remember that last shot, but there were so many other things that led to that that are, that are going to get overshadowed. Well, I think the biggest thing that's going to get overshadowed is that I think eight of the other 12 over, Gonzaga scored 12 points in the, eight, in the overtime. And I think, I think six, at least six, definitely could have been eight were by Drew Timmy. And nobody's going to remember that because they're just going to remember Jalen Suggs hitting a buzzer-beating near half-court three and jumping on the table like he's Dwayne Wade. Um, Didn't Timmy also take the key charge? And Timmy also took the charge that won the game for... that pretty much won the game because it sent it in overtime. If it wasn't a charge, you have a 90% free-throw shooter shooting two free-throws. Just needs to make one for the win, that free-throw shooter being Johnny Juzang. Uh, it could be debated for forever if that's a charge or a block or not. I have said so many times this year, not on the podcast, but you know from watching individual games with me, I think the charge and the block could be a rule that you could do away with because you got you can find some alternative to it, but there is no one standard that is clearly being refed on. If you look at Especially one game, it is being called so differently from one game to the next. Uh, it's, it's impossible. You, you can say... Well, yeah, you're supposed to be in a legal guarding position and outside of the circle. But Timmy was he was in a legal guarding position. But I have seen people in a quote-unquote legal guarding position because, frankly, what even is that? Uh, outside of the restricted circle all the time, be called to charge. That time they called it a block. Uh, later, actually, it happened. We'll, we'll talk about it later. But in the championship game, same thing happened to Jalen Suggs. Big factor in that game where he got called for a charge and not a block. And it, it really can change games, and it really did in this one. Uh, I, I hope they can figure out some way to ref it uh, unanimously the same, but it's just, it's, I feel like it's, it's one of those calls that it, it can't be resolved. It's going to be very college basketball, too, with the different conferences and the different refs. And, and also, different. since the flop warning was enacted, you see a lot of point guards taking charges on bigs, and then some, some conferences even in the Big Ten, they'll call it a flop every single time, but... When you get to the NCAA tournament, I think it happened with a lot of the bigs. It was always a charge. So, hey, at least they called the hook and hold in this game. Yeah, that's we true. So it was a, it was a. Yeah, there are a lot of. I think there are a lot of rules changes that college basketball could look at after not even just this one game, but that really impact the game. So, so I want to give you a little bit of credit here uh, because you mentioned UCLA's um, let's call it fortuitousness, fortuitousness with last second shots. Um, you, I think you called it that Alabama went against them, and in the Michigan game, the last second three went in their favor, and then here we go in this game. You said, up, oh, probably may come back, the pendulum may swing again, and sure enough, it did. Every other game, UCLA, you know, either gave up or did not give up the game-winning shot. And I would also or, uh, not say a game-winning shot in the Alabama game, sent it to overtime. And I would also say you even forget that um, Johnny Jews or Jaime Jaquez kicked the ball off of John Petty's shorts and. They said that the shorts grazed the ball when you can't see that on a replay. But anyway, that that was another call that I would say is all luck because he clearly kicked the ball and they yeah. didn't call a kicked ball. So they got a lot of things going their way that led to it. And you know what? It's you're right. The pendulum swung back uh, at the very give, very wrong time. Give UCLA credit, right? They played three overtime games, won two of them, lost the third one in the final four on a. And Almost they were a 14-and-a-half-point underdog and brought the game to overtime. Give them credit. So. I don't think anybody saw that coming from UCLA. Nope, I know not I at cer- all. I certainly not didn't. Not at all. The good news from that result was that we got the national championship game. I think that everybody wanted those people who 
were watching pre-COVID. And don't have fans. Yeah, and yeah, they're not fans of teams. <laughs> basketball fans, if you said to them, what's the championship game you want to see? They would have said it's Baylor-Gonzaga. From the beginning game, of the year. From the beginning of the year. Yep. They were supposed to play earlier in the year, and the game got yep. canceled. And they, they said con- they were going to make it up, and they never ended up doing it. They were continuously the number one and number two, or maybe 1A and 1B at one point in time, uh, teams in the country. So we had the matchup of, of Baylor that, as we talked about, looked like they finally hit their stride. And Gonzaga, who, as we talked about from that UCLA game, maybe people... Maybe looked a little showing, flustered. Maybe showing a little uh, a little bit of, of, of weakness, and maybe they weren't as strong as people thought. Um it played out that way. Baylor beat Gonzaga 86-70 in the national championship game. It was not a classic like the Gonzaga-UCLA game. It's more like the Baylor-Houston game. Uh, Patrick, your thoughts on this game? Uh, I thought the key to the game was Jalen Suggs' two early fouls because if Including you look... the controversial one you just mentioned. Yeah, if you look at uh, how the game played out, except for if you, if you remove the first, I'd say, two and a half minutes uh, where he was in the game... Once he got his second foul, they really started to lose it. Baylor extended their lead. And the time they actually got back into the game is because Mark Few decided, I'm going to lose this game if I don't put Jalen Suggs in. Uh, Most coaches don't let their players play with two fouls in the first half. Uh, It actually almost lost Baylor a game in the Elite Eight because Davion Mitchell got his third in the first half, and they were just staying afloat without him. And then he came back and scored 12 in the second half. Uh, John Beeline, Michigan's old coach, was notorious because he had a rule that if you got two fouls, you were not playing for the entirety of the rest of the first half, no matter what the circumstances were. So there are a lot of... Two fouls is really a magic number in terms of when you play and when you can't. And to get your second foul at 17 minutes, I think it was, uh, they brought him back in 10 minutes in to the first half, and really he played the rest of those 10 minutes. Scott Free did not pick up another foul. Although he did blow straight through a screen with eight minutes yeah, left in the first yeah. half, and they called it an illegal screen rather than a foul on him, I guess it was a makeup for the earlier call that he could have that that maybe didn't necessarily have to be his. But that changed the game because when he was off the floor, Baylor was killing Gonzaga. When he was on the floor, I would say it was almost even. Uh, and he had twenty-two points in this game, and he didn't even play his full regimen of minutes because of that foul trouble. Uh, Timmy had a little bit of an injury that they were working on on the sidelines in the second half, really late, but still could have been another factor, could have sparked a little mini run at the end to keep it close. Uh, But the story of this game was the guards, was guard play. Uh, Baylor's guards that they had all year clicking whenever Baylor was winning and whenever Baylor looked like the 22-0 team that could have been better than Gonzaga, it was because... Uh, Jared Butler, Macy Oteague, Davion Mitchell, and Flagler were just amazing. They were shooting the lights out of the ball. They could not be stopped. They were scoring all of Baylor's points. And when you have to pay that much attention, every single pick and roll gets doubled up top and the centers are dunking everywhere. They combined for 69 of Baylor's 86 points today. Butler, Teague, Mitchell, and Flagler That was the difference in the game, that they finally all woke up, all right at the same time, shot a ridiculous percentage. I think they were shooting 60% from three at the half, and they ended up shooting uh, 44% from three, which their season average is 42. So, frankly, right on average for them somehow. Butler was Uh, four of nine from three. Teague was two of three from three. Flagler was three of four from three. So you're reading, you're going with the team stats. 
but those three guys were on yep. fire. And that's that's really how Baylor won their games early in the year. And uh, off the COVID pauses, where they kind of had some rough shooting nights, and that's why they ended up losing. They, I think it was uh, I think it was Jared Butler who was one for thirteen against Kansas in the game that they lost by twelve. So that that's what that's really the only reason why they ever lost a game this season. And when those guards are on, this is what we were talking about. When those guards were on, that was making Baylor one of the best teams in the country. They were on point today. And meanwhile. Besides Jalen Suggs, Timmy had 12, and Kispert had 12. They're not a great shooting night. They were off. I, but I think you hit the nail on the head. When Suggs went out with those two fouls, Gonzaga looked completely out of sync on offense. Give Baylor credit. Baylor was playing very physical defense, as they always do, aggressive defense. Gonzaga, give them credit. They came back and cut it to nine points. Uh, that's as close as the game got. Your other thoughts? Uh, I think the biggest thing in this game also was Gonzaga. Look, we we want to talk about three-point shooting. Gonzaga only shot 29% compared to Baylor's 44. But in overall shooting, Gonzaga outshot Baylor by 6%. But Baylor got 18 extra shots over Gonzaga by virtue of having 14 offensive rebounds to Gonzaga's one. And seven turnovers compared to Gonzaga's 14 turnovers. So Baylor created 28 extra opportunities for themselves. Gonzaga created eight. And that and really changed the game. For the game. Gonzaga shot 51% for the out. game. Baylor shot 45% for the game. And in the end, Baylor still absolutely dismantled Gonzaga, beating them by 16. Uh, you're, you're not going to see many games where a team outshoots the other team by 6% and loses by 16. That well, is really hard to find. So congratulations to Baylor. Um, congratulations to basketball programs west of the Mississippi. Yep. That was one of the things you talked about heading into the tournament that I think it only happened one time. It, the last time it happened was 2008 with Kansas, yeah. Um, this time we knew it was going to happen. That a team west of the Mississippi had won a national, national championship. championship. This time yep. we knew it was going to happen given that uh, everybody um, in, in the Final Four was west of the Mississippi. We also talked about the Ken Palm top 20 offensive and defensive efficiency we haven't seen the updated Ken Palm yet because the game uh, has just ended. Baylor uh, ended up at twenty second in adjusted defense, so just Baylor out did. out just outside the threshold of uh, top twenty. Maybe in we'll both tweak it. What were they in offensive efficiency? They were number two. So, so they averaged eleven. Well, but <laughs> you could say that you could say that about every team. Teams. So, uh, but actually tied for twenty first, you could say, and they were point one behind Saint Bonaventure for twentieth. So, so nearly, nearly by the ne- by the slimmest margin, they did not get Finish into in that stat. Yeah. Miles. Well, they they were so they were, they were second and twenty first. That's pretty darn close. Yeah. It's, it's it's a key stat to watch. Um, anything else you want to talk about as we think back to this final four of the NCAA tournament? Besides the fact that. We're just happy we had it. Brought back some normalcy. Uh, I would say what we thought how our how our little bracket experiment would go out, which I think we'll go into on the next podcast. Uh, it didn't pan out as we thought, uh, especially my objective picks. Fans, if you're listening, bracket advice for next year: don't pick by stats. Pick with your heart, because my personal bias bracket did so much better than my objective bracket because. When you get into the trap of picking teams that you don't like, half the time you don't like them because you just don't think you're that they're that good. And uh, that kind of ruined my bracket. Let's just say Illinois was the champion in that bracket. That bracket was over by the second weekend. So, 
All right, well, you mentioned uh, future podcasts. That wraps up this edition of the 4th and 24 podcasts. But please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Friday, April 9th, where we will, in addition to taking a look back maybe at some of these prediction methodologies uh, from the NCAA tournament that we highlighted a few weeks ago, we're going to talk about Major League Baseball, preview Patrick's weekend predictions. That'll be new. We're not just going to have them on the website. We're going to preview them here on the podcast. And we'll talk about any other significant events in the world of sports. In the meantime, be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his NBA Power Rankings update tomorrow, his picks for next weekend's games, which will go up Thursday, and his MLB Power Rankings updates, which are posted on Saturdays. All of those on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.